it's impossible to talk about U.S. Indian policy in the late 1800s without mentioning the name Richard Henry Pratt. Pratt set up the Indian school at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the very model for other schools around the country, and can easily be lumped in with other white officials with disastrous policies for Amerindians. And he didn't do himself any favors on that front with his infamous quote, kill the Indian in him and save the man. Don't get me wrong, there was a lot that Pratt did to earn him his spot of notoriety, and I won't pretend that he wasn't an authoritarian while overseeing Carlisle or didn't willfully try to remove a generation of students from their cultural heritages. But though he was the author of a lot of abuses that rained down on Amerindian children, there is something else to note about the man himself. He worked for the Office of Indian Affairs for nearly 25 years, but was a perennial thorn in the sides of his superiors. Pratt detested the reservation system and the segregation of Amerindians from everyone else. He decried the atrocities committed against Amerindians by U.S. troops, and he was always ready to criticize the bureaucracy overseeing Indian Affairs as doing more harm than good. But one of his major complaints, especially after his forced retirement in 1903, was the way one of his most cherished ideals had been taken, twisted, and implemented elsewhere. For Pratt, the other Indian schools, especially the large one in Phoenix, had perverted what should have been the largest feather in his cap. The outing system. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 158, Carlisle of the West. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we took a deep dive into the student experience at the Phoenix Indian School in the first 30 to 40 years of its existence. Unfortunately, as I was recounting the horrors of forced assimilation last week, I ran out of time, as is my habit, so I didn't get to touch on the thing I really wanted to, and the thing I've been teasing for two weeks now. So this episode, we are going to thoroughly explore what might have been the single biggest example of exploitation happening at the Phoenix Indian School, the outing system. As a refresher, the outing system was developed by Pratt, with Carlisle being the model of how Indian Bureau off-reservation schools developed. In his quest to assimilate Amerindians into American culture as fast as possible, Pratt and his school would spend two years teaching students English and farm work and then send them out to live with families where they would keep on working and even earn some money. Most agreed that this system was working pretty well, and as they say, nothing succeeds like success. Now, jump forward 11 years, and the Indian Bureau is considering opening one of these off-reservation schools, based on the Carlisle model, in Phoenix. You'll recall from our episode a couple weeks ago that large meetings were held in Phoenix at the end of 1890 to discuss this school and where to place it. Enthusiasm for this project was high, and Phoenix boosters were all lining up to help either raise funds, drum up more community support, or even kick some families off their land to give the school a nice spot. But it's important to remember that 
all of this support had little to do with the declared aim of Indian Bureau schools. It was all about the money. As historian Robert Trennert notes, during one meeting in mid-December 1890, only Wellington Rich, the school's first superintendent, bothered to mention any possible benefits for the Indians. Instead, everyone else had huge dollar signs in their eyes as they talked about building this school. This new institution would bring hundreds of students to Phoenix, students that had to be fed and clothed, not to mention new jobs, the salaries of which would be paid by the federal government and would be spent in town. And although it's never mentioned in my sources, I have to assume that some people were also thinking about the possibility of tourism as well. During the preliminary meetings in the fall of 1890, the budgets of Carlisle and similar schools were reviewed and some quick back-of-the-envelope calculations said that the Phoenix Indian School could bring in $100,000 annually to the Valley of the Sun. No wonder Territorial Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy said that getting the school was the equivalent of nabbing 10 universities and capitals. One of the reasons that boosters rallied so hard for the project is because there were rumors that if Phoenix didn't pan out, the school would move to somewhere in Southern California. You should never underestimate the kind of decisions 19th century towns made because their competitive hackles were raised. For them, it was more than FOMO. It was making sure that their city would be the place that everyone wanted to go. But even at this early stage, boosters were already thinking about the other economic incentive that came along with building the school, the ability to get cheap labor. During the Indian Bureau's initial forays to Arizona to locate a suitable location, land speculators William Christie and William J. Murphy pointed out all the land in Phoenix that was being planted with fruit trees and vines. This, they declared, would provide an excellent amount of work for future students, all in the name of helping them learn to be Americans, of course. The Arizona Republican newspaper, chasing the story of this possible cash cow coming to town, printed on October 10, 1890 that, quote, The establishment of this school will furnish cheap and efficient labor in quantity to warrant the growing and manufacture of cotton here in the valley, as well as to afford fruit growers facilities for handling the rapidly increasing quantity of fruit that will be handled in one way or another, end quote. Local employers were salivating at the thought of having young Amerindian boys to pick fruit, while housewives were giddy with the idea of having Amerindian girls to act as domestic servants. The Pima Indian agent at the time said, quote, The farmers and fruit growers in the vicinity of the school are ready to employ these boys and girls as soon as their labor becomes sufficiently skillful to pay them, end quote. Even before the school was built, local farmers actually requested that Rich send them a hundred young men to help them during the fruit harvest. Obviously, the superintendent couldn't accommodate this request, and similar ones in coming years, but the pressure to get these youth out working in the community was there from the very beginning. By the time Rich would actually start an outing system, it had already become a different animal than what had been established at Carlisle. In general, the off-reservation schools in the western part of the United States struggled with establishing outing systems. This was mostly due to demographics, as there were simply not enough respectable white families in close proximity to the schools to send students to live with. 
Carlisle had been surrounded by farmers in Pennsylvania that Pratt could call upon, but as is still the case today, things were a little more spread out once you went to the other side of the country. And there were legitimate questions about whether a Carlisle-like system could be adapted to the unique conditions of the frontier. Commissioner of Indian Affairs Thomas J. Morgan believed both that it could be and should be tweaked when brought out west, which, as we will see, was ultimately to the detriment of the students. Because as part of this tweaking, Morgan and school administration turned away from families and toward businesses. Remember that Pratt had specifically picked out families who had a vested interest in his students' success, and had avoided sending them to work at regular businesses or even in the city at all to keep them from becoming small cogs in a big capitalist wheel. Well, guess what happened in Phoenix? As we've already seen, the choice to put the school in the city was a political and economic one, and everyone was licking their lips at the prospect of cheap labor. Nearly all my sources quote Hardwood Hall, the Phoenix Indian School's second superintendent, who remarked, quote, The hiring of Indian youth is not looked upon by the people of this valley from a philanthropic standpoint. It is simply a matter of business, end quote. That is not a very promising statement, especially as it was made several years after the outing system had gotten going in earnest. If we jump back a few years to the founding of the school into Rich, we find that he, like many of his contemporaries, loved the outing system, even if he was not particularly a fan of Pratt's philosophy. According to Trenert, Rich didn't believe that the Amerindians should assimilate into wider American culture. Instead, he believed that his students would all go back to their reservations and work there, so there was no value in teaching them any skills or trades that wouldn't apply to the reservations in Arizona. The other side of this is he realized that the local community would stop supporting his school real quick if he didn't train his students specifically to work for nearby businesses. However, it wouldn't be until 1893, two years into the school's operation, that Rich would get the outing system up and running in earnest. You might recall from our last episode that Rich described his first crop of students as raw recruits with almost no grasp of English. But two years in, he finally felt he had good enough boys to place in a vineyard, and even with the contractors erecting new buildings on campus. However, the big news is that he also let 11 girls be hired out as domestic servants, each of whom was carefully selected to make sure the initial foray of the outing system was not a disastrous one. As we'll see, Phoenix seemed to have a crazed hunger for Amerindian domestic servants, as everyone wanted one to do their cooking, cleaning, or sewing. When Hall took over for Rich in 1893, he recognized this and really opened up the outing system. Not only did this mean sending more students into the field, but also making sure their coursework reflected their expected future employment. This was especially true for the girls, whose workload consisted mainly of cooking and homemaking. Hall would also say, quote, The school can thus serve as an employment agency, whereby the deserving Indian pupil can secure employment as soon as qualified. End quote. The outing system at Phoenix was destined to be the second largest in the nation after Carlisle itself, and it's during Hall's administration that the school started acquiring the nickname 
the Carlisle of the West. How it worked was that the boys and girls were hired out to families at an average rate of $8 per month, which was, predictably, less than what a white laborer would get, but still considered to be very generous for Indians. Boys and girls would go out to work on Monday and return to the school on Saturdays, in a vain attempt to keep them still thinking of themselves as students rather than wage workers. Hall, however, kind of ran away with the program, as he would offer to find employment for Akamel and Tahona Odom children attending other schools and even extended the program into Southern California. By 1896, Hall had some 200 students, mostly girls, participating in the school's outing system. By the time that Hall's successor, S.M. McCowan, arrived in 1897, some of the problems of the outing system were becoming apparent. One of the big ones was the lack of supervision for all these students out there across Arizona and into California. Another issue raised in coming years was that, once again, the students were not hired out of any sense of philanthropy or social consciousness, but because they were cheap labor and nothing else. And if they were working Monday through Saturday, when exactly were they supposed to receive any sort of education from their quote-unquote school? One superintendent pointed out in 1902 that with their studies regularly interrupted to send them out into the field, students were failing to learn English as well as they should and were showing a disinterest in learning at all. So really, the outing system wasn't preparing them for anything aside from a lifetime of menial labor. All of this is a far cry from what Pratt had desired, with his outing system being turned from a way to slowly diffuse Amerindians into the white farming tradition into a way for businesses to get some workers they didn't have to pay very much for. Part of this had to do with the economics of the large western territories and with their general attitudes toward Amerindians. However, the other part was those who were running the Indian Bureau these days. Most of those whom we could charitably describe as humanitarians, who wanted to elevate and civilize Amerindians, like Pratt, had by the turn of the 20th century been replaced with professional bureaucrats. And these didn't have such a rosy view of their wards, falling back on typical attitudes of them being inferior and incapable of ever really assimilating. Therefore, they tended to support those programs that would either train Amerindians to do menial work or ship them back to their reservations where they wouldn't make any trouble. In the words of Trenert, quote, these officials, who after 1900 dominated the Indian Bureau, continued to value the outing system, but expected it to accomplish much less. End quote. As I said a minute or so ago, one of the major problems with the outing system as it was currently operating was the issue of supervision. This being the edge of the Victorian era, those in charge were mostly worried about the girls participating in the system, fearing that they would either not be taught how to be proper ladies or they would fall into all-out vice. Because of this, McCowan received permission to hire an outing matron, who would act as a supervisor, advisor, and role model, but most of these issues still remained. The inadequate supervision led to a minor scandal that broke out in 1902. Basically, a group of Amerindians living on the reservations had come into Phoenix to work, they also were not that well supervised and were the same age as the girls enrolled in the outing system. Gee, boys and girls, mostly in their teenage years in close proximity with no chaperones, 
What could possibly go wrong? Charges of immorality went flying back and forth, with many claiming that the youth were getting together for all sorts of mischief, including gambling, drinking, swearing, and for all of you familiar with the play Mamma Mia, dot, dot, dot. It was even said that the reservation Indians would hang out near where the outing girls were living and encourage them to go out carousing. The town leaders were naturally upset by all of this and complained loudly to the school. The superintendent tried to brush this all off, saying that if there were such incidents happening, they were the exception rather than the rule, and probably all the bad stuff was the fault of the reservation Indians, not his students. Still, the damage was done to the point that he recalled all the girls back to the school and would only allow them to work in town on Saturday. At this point, the outing matron suddenly up and quit and became quite vocal about what she saw as the major issues with the program. She was particularly against this latest change to only send girls to work on Saturday, claiming, quote, the people for whom the girls work teach them nothing, but simply pile up the hard and dirty work till Saturday and then complain if the work is not perfectly done, end quote. And the girls were still being sent into Phoenix unescorted, meaning that they didn't always come back to school right after their work ended, if you know what I mean. The complaints from these scandals were enough that the Indian commissioner told the schools to recall any students they had in the outing system immediately. Starting in October 1903, the commissioner also required schools to file quarterly outing pupil reports, which were meant to show whether outing systems had adequate supervision. Of course, they didn't, and the reports showed a lack of education to boot. It would take years for Phoenix's outing program to recover from these scandals. The school would even open an industrial cottage on its campus, which was basically a mock home for girls to practice the domestic arts since they couldn't be sent out into the community. And when the school started sending students out again, it was only with the best-behaved students, in conditions that wouldn't affect their schoolwork and, most importantly, nothing that would reflect badly on the school itself. Still, caution would reign for years, and in 1908, the school only had 20 boys and 12 girls participating in the outing program. But scandals or not, Phoenix still had a hunger for cheap Amerindian labor, and pressure grew for the Phoenix Indian School to send more and more of its students out. By the outbreak of World War I, the outing system was again in full swing. Under the direction of a new matron who was hired in 1911, the number of girls out working in Phoenix households was above 200, and by 1923, it was 273. Quite frankly, it was fashionable for wealthy and influential families to employ an Amerindian domestic servant, and they would take them along to take care of things when they went on vacation or summer retreats. But with the resumption of the system, all the old issues came back. Students were sent out to work with little to no regard for their actual education. In fact, some Amerindian youth were taken directly from the reservation and put into households, so giving up the pretense of schooling altogether. In some cases, abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, occurred. Some students complained that their patrons swore at them, restricted their freedoms, and worked them so hard they were in pain. Once again, I will put the same disclaimer I put last week, 
My sources do not explicitly mention it, but I cannot believe there wasn't some sexual abuse happening as well. In other cases, the housewives of Phoenix fell into thinking that since they were paying a decent wage, their obligation to the students was fulfilled, so they stopped any sort of supervision. With lax supervision, we have more quote-unquote immorality issues, and there were more than a few girls who soon found themselves in shotgun marriages. Also, by the 1920s, Phoenix was being plagued with a large number of Amerindian girls whom the authorities were quick to label delinquents. And by that, we we're talking about girls involved in prostitution, or what is demurely called amusement establishments, and others who were just simply scofflaws. Of course, by necessity, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. Actual working conditions depended on both the individual Amerindian student and the patron. There was a contingent of students who considered their jobs useful and the outing system a blessing. In other cases, deep bonds formed between the patrons and the students working in the system. But on the whole, the thinking among both white patrons and the students themselves was that the Amerindian students would never assimilate into society. From Trunnard again we read, quote, They were simply workers supplied by the government and were expected only to be efficient and docile. End quote. And this attitude really marked the beginning of the end for the outing system. The 1920s would prove to be the last decade for this project. By now the system was so far removed from its beginnings at Carlisle that the school openly admitted, quote, we have no outing system in the sense that the term was used by its originator, end quote. And in 1922, the Phoenix Indian School made official what had only been understood up to this point. Its work program had no educational basis, and it was serving as nothing more than an employment agency. That year, formal regulations were sent out notifying all Amerindians working in Phoenix, adults, youth, and children enrolled in the school or not, that they were now under the school's jurisdiction. In order to hire any sort of Amerindian help, white families and businesses had to apply directly with the outing matron. Soon, all the people participating in the outing system were either Amerindians direct from the various reservations or former students who wanted to continue working in Phoenix, not students themselves. Students were still allowed to work, however, only during the summer when there were no classes. The rest of the year, only adults were staffed out. But the program was growing with roughly 400 Amerindians finding work through the outing system annually. An inspector in 1925 noted that the matron, who once was put into place to supervise the female students, was now basically a social services job. She was also in charge of supervising the wages earned by workers. To make sure that the Amerindians didn't blow all their money on comic books and bubblegum, the rules of the outing system said that every worker had to have a savings account that they deposited a certain percentage of their salary into. Growing out of the matron's original job description of safeguarding morals was her new charge of making sure that those rules were followed. So, to recap, the matron is now a social worker overseeing bank accounts, the outing system is mainly employing adults from the reservations, and students are barely even part of it anymore. Trunnard also gives a very succinct summary when he said, quote, by 1930, then, the Phoenix Indian School was simply supplying the citizens of the town with Indian labor. In 
The outing system, in the sense originally conceived, had declined to the point that it was unrecognizable. End quote. But he also points out that the demise of Phoenix's outing system mirrors what was happening across the rest of the country around the same time. Phoenix was one of the largest programs, but it wasn't the only place where the outing system had drifted away from its original moralistic mooring. Complaints about the exploitative nature of the program were common, and in the 1920s, a new group of reformers began to advocate a change in Indian policy. A report in 1928 came to the conclusion that Amerindian children enrolled in such programs were not receiving fair wages, were kept in menial positions, and had little to no supervision. Whatever it may have been in the past, the report noted, at the present, the outing system is mainly a plan for hiring out boys for odd jobs and girls for domestic service, seldom a plan for providing real vocational training. So while the Phoenix Indian School would continue to serve as an employment agency, the outing system as originally conceived by Pratt was dead by 1930. Really, its spirit had died long before that, though its animated zombie had continued to place boys and girls throughout Phoenix and beyond. A combination of circumstances in the West, opportunistic town boosters, accommodating school officials, and differing philosophies in the Indian Bureau had ensured that Pratt's vision would never fully extend past his own control at Carlisle. Most of those who eagerly rushed to set up outing systems loved the idea, even though most were openly critical of Pratt's assimilation philosophy. For these officials, and I'm not sure how much more I can stress this, it was all about supplying cheap labor. And as I said at the beginning, Pratt himself would become a vocal critic of the outing system, writing as early as 1895 that, quote, the frontier outing is and must be a failure, end quote. By 1908, he was a truly outspoken critic of what had been set up in the Western schools, but by that time, people had more or less stopped listening to him. By the way, Carlisle itself had closed down in 1918, and that was 14 years after Pratt had been forced out of his position overseeing the school and into retirement in the Army due to his outspoken criticisms of both the Indian Bureau and the reservation system. However, while we are closing our little run of episodes about the early decades of the Phoenix Indian School on that somber note, I do want to add in a disclaimer here. The vast majority of anything you read about the school is going to lay out what we spent the last three weeks going over. The school was where Amerindian children suffered in an abusive and oppressive system that was trying to both exploit them and destroy their cultural heritage. That being said, you'll also find there is a small contingent of former students who actually look back fondly on their time in the school and even things like the outing system. Part of that is just individual experiences and attitudes and the other subjective things that make us form opinions. Another part is that the Phoenix Indian School did change in the last half century of its existence as federal Indian policy also changed, something that I plan to touch on as we move forward into the future. For now, I just want to acknowledge that, as with all things in life involving people, there are many different viewpoints out there. But we are going to leave off talking about the Phoenix Indian School for now. Join me next week as we take another necessary swing back through politics and lay some crucial groundwork for the upcoming fight to let Arizona grow up into a proper U.S. 
state. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.